The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 26, and we're going to start in verse 26. This week, we are continuing uh, in our series. It's called Spiritual Disciplines, Glorifying God Through Humble Obedience. And tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at the spiritual discipline of worship. Now, I know for some of you to hear worship categorized as a spiritual discipline, that might sound strange to you. Uh, And this is most likely the result of negative feelings that the word discipline conjures. Uh, Because for many of us, when we think of discipline, we think of either something that we probably don't want to do, that we need to do, or something that we want to do that we're not going to do. And and typically, discipline gets thrown into that bucket, right? So for most of us, discipline is, is a lot like eating the garden salad versus the cheeseburger, right? Or, uh, you know, some, some, for some of you, it would be not eating the cookie, right? So <clears throat> I think for a lot of you, maybe discipline, and we've tried to undo some of the connotation that comes with that word, because when we're talking about spiritual disciplines, it's, it's different than that. Um, you know, but you, you hear worship and discipline, it's like, hold on, that doesn't, when I think of discipline, I think of me angrily eating a salad, right? Or angrily watching other people eat cookies while I'm not. So, However, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Spiritual disciplines and the things we've been discussing, they're, they're different, or at least, at least they should be. The, the hope is that when the Spirit of God sets us free from slavery to sin and death through the grace of the gospel, that these disciplines that we're talking about become gifts that we enjoy instead of tasks we endure. And that's been the hope throughout this, is for us to see these things the way Jesus sees them. Uh, which are sources of joy, freedom gifts for us to be able to participate in because we've been set free to do so. Um, And all of that just leads to more and more joy, hopefully. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.7 admonishes us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Uh, And and this this has really been the whole point of of this series. Uh, We've talked thus far about fasting, Bible consumption, praying, uh, service, all different spiritual disciplines, and tonight we're going to talk about worship. Now, we've, we've anchored our study of these things in the life of Jesus because if we're disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, and if Jesus is the best and most exact representation of the character of God that we have, then godliness and Christ-likeness are synonymous. It's basically the same thing. And Romans 8.29 tells us that uh, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And so God has a vision for his people. And that vision is that he's taking us from wherever he finds us, whatever dark, dirty, mud, and nastiness he finds us in. He wants to pull us up out of that and begin a process with us of conforming us, making us, shaping us into the image of Jesus, his son. And... uh, that's part of, that's, that fits very squarely into this because if we're disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we're disciplining ourselves to be like Jesus, it helps to know that the, the simple plain fact that there's a purpose, right? Because anything done simply just because tends to turn into a drudgery and become a task, a box to be checked as opposed to 
something to enjoy and participate in, right? So uh, we do need to say, right, Jesus' life was marked by all the spiritual disciplines that we are now invited to enjoy and that we're talking about in this series, but we also need to say that Jesus walked out his life on this earth perfectly until he laid himself down as the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. And though we are called to follow his example, the Bible is clear we will not do that perfectly. And this is why we have some other gifts, those being confession and repentance that we are invited to partake in. Uh, And we have the precious promise that God will forgive those who trust him by faith when we confess our sins and repent of those. So praise God for all of that. Just want to make sure this language now for five weeks of God's vision of us being like Jesus, that is absolutely true, and that is absolutely what the process looks like of sanctification that God is taking us on. But we need to be clear, uh, this side of glory or this side of eternity, we will not reach the perfection that Jesus walked in. Uh, But thank God in his foresight, he made... uh, he made a way that that doesn't separate us from him, right? That uh, because of grace through faith, we now can confess sin uh, and that atonement's been made for that. So we are thankful for all of those things. God's plan is totally perfect and uh, we can trust it. So amen. I'm going to read Matthew 26, uh, verses 26 through 30. And uh, this sermon should be, I always leave myself wiggle room because I try my best. This sermon should be shorter than most, uh, and part of that is because, as we did uh, during the spiritual discipline of prayer, I think part of our goal here is to cultivate a deeper desire for worship and all that comes with that, and so we're going to take more time at the end than we normally do. We're going to give you more time to participate in the spiritual discipline and the freedom gift of worship, and hopefully as we study God's Word together, you'll be excited about that by the end instead of looking at your watch and wondering what it means that I just said, right? What, what, do, you, what do you mean longer? It's, it's going to be awesome, all right? And I'm expecting God to do something in your life and in your heart tonight that you've never experienced before. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 30. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Praise God for his word. Uh, let's take a moment and let's just set this in its proper place, okay? I got a pop quiz for all you noble Bereans out here, you Bible scholars. Uh, what very famous event was this scene we just read a part of? And I'm going to even give you a clue because I'm a very gracious, loving shepherd, okay? It's also a very famous painting by da Vinci, okay? Where are we at in the scriptures right now? What event is this that we just read out of? It is the, the Last Supper. Okay, now... I'm going to press you even farther. You all right? We got that one. That was pretty good. That was strong. Why was it the last supper? Why was it the last supper? Why why does it have that name? Right. So I I just set you up for an awkward situation. Really, I should have told you that one was rhetorical. I'll explain it to you. Because 
<laughs> Let's get 14 answers all at once. Because Jesus, right, is about to be betrayed, and they will not have another meal like this until we have one together in eternity, right? It says that. Jesus says that. It's the last time we're going to be together like this. On this side of eternity, right? He's pointing to that glorious hope that we're all reaching for. So we see here that, why is all that important? We see here that Jesus spends some of this precious time. This is the last supper. This is one of the last interactions he has with his men before Judas, or Judas, I don't know who that is, before Judas, before Judas and, 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 and the mob of, of I'm going to tone it down, the guys, the mob of guys come and, and take the master away. So, uh, and what is Jesus doing in these last few precious moments? Well, he's eating with them, but then in verse 30 shows us something really beautiful. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I, Jesus is very intentional. Jesus knew exactly what time it was, and I don't mean time on the clock. I mean time in the timeline. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, and it's telling to me that he spent some of these last few precious moments before his betrayal singing a hymn with his men. What did they do? They took time for worship. This was a priority of the master in these last few moments. So tonight, I think we see the, the importance of it. We see that Jesus cared about it. And, and I think that's, those ideas are bolstered by his use of this time to worship with the disciples. So let's think through together what worship is, why we worship, and how we worship. Okay? Uh, and that's going to lead into a time of us coming before the Lord in worship together. So uh, the first thing I want to say is that we are intentionally narrowing the scope tonight to focus on worship with the aid of music, first of all. Uh, and specifically, we're going to talk mostly in the context of God's gathered community. Okay? And, and why, why do I say that? Well, because, I, I, and I'm a strong believer in this, there's this idea that for those who belong to Jesus... We should seek for every thought, word, and action in our life to be worship. All of our life should be declaring the goodness and glory of God. Every thought, every word, every action. Uh, that, of course, what I just described is, is the perfection with which Jesus walked. We're going to come short of that, but we still want to shoot for that bar, right? And when we come short of it, we ask for God's forgiveness. But I'm a big proponent of that idea, and so when I think of worship, I think of whole life worship, but we are talking specifically about tonight, singing together as a congregation, the playing of instruments, and all that happens when a congregation of people comes together and in music praises and worships God. We're talking about that more specifically. Just to kind of back up the idea I gave you, Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay, and so there's this idea that Jesus doesn't just set us free uh, by dying in our place for our sins, but, but there is a purchasing uh, of us. And so we now belong to him. We call him master, and that means something. It's not just cutesy language. And so uh, the, the book of Romans here tells us that our, our life should be a living sacrifice, and that's our spiritual service of worship. And so, in a very real way, we should ask before we say, do, and even let a thought be entertained in our minds, we should ask, is this worshipful to God? And for some of you might think, well, that sounds a little extreme. It is, 
And it's only possible by the help of the Holy Spirit. But all that we do, all that we say, all that we think should be able to be worshiped to God. Well, I'm really far from that and you're bumming me out. Hey, man, me too. That's why confession, repentance, and grace is such really beautiful good news. Amen? Just because that, just because that bar is really high and Jesus set a, a perfect example doesn't mean we get scared and, and, and shoot lower than that because we just don't see how we could get there. Because uh, we're not talking about you doing what you can do. Uh, we're not talking about the limitations of your own strengths and self-discipline. We're talking about the fact that Jesus promised he would leave the Holy Spirit, uh, his very essence and nature, a, as a helper for you, and that you're going to be able to obey him far better than you ever could on your own. You're going to be able to resist temptation far better than you ever could on your own. And you're going to be able to be a light uh, of the glorious gospel of Christ to the world far better than you ever could be on your own. So this is not up to you, and you're not alone in this thing. I hope that's good news for you. Amen. Uh, we are going to focus in tonight on the act of God's people worshiping uh, with music and in song, okay? So, um, trying to come up with, using human language, a, a good answer to the question, what is worship, all right? And this, this will be a little clunky because the Bible leaves it a little clunky, but we're going to do our best to fill in around this, and uh, come up with something helpful, okay? So, uh, first off, the English word worship, just so we know kind of what we're saying, like thinking about just etymology from that standpoint, it comes from the, the word worship, worship. And so, worship in one sense, and I would say this doesn't, this doesn't fully encompass what it is we're after here, but in one sense, worship is showing, displaying, and declaring the worth of God. He is worthy. The Bible says that over and over. Um, many of what we hear the angelic host in heaven in the book of Revelation declaring is the worth. Worthy is the Lamb. And so part of what worship is is to make that declaration. We sing songs that declare the worthiness of God and of Christ, our Messiah. Um, and our lives should reflect how much He's worth. That We're willing to lay down uh, anything at all, uh, and, and that, that, that speaks to the value of this creator and this savior that we have. And so that's, that's one sense of it. The, the Bible has a lot of references to worship, and there are several Hebrew and Greek words that are translated worship, but we aren't ever really given like a hard and fast definition. There's no part of the Bible where it says Here's a definition like Webster would do of, of what worship is. So we're, we're piecing together what worship is based on all that's said about it in the scriptures. Um, so I'm going to give you a couple thoughts. Now, these are not on par with scripture. These are some, just some things that I think will be helpful as we try to, basically this is taking all that the Bible says about it, trying to condense it down into a, a sufficient answer of what is worship. Okay, so... The, the first I'm going to give you is, is by a guy named Donald Whitney. He wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, been been a, a very uh, formative and powerful book for a, a lot of folks here I know that have read it. And uh, it's, it's definitely been in the mix of things that um, I've been learning from as we've been going through this series. So he, he has a very concise answer uh, to what is worship. And each of these guys would have, would have given you the, the humble uh, preface that I did that this is not fully and completely tell you or define for you what worship is, but 
doing our best with what the Bible gives us to, to kind of get some guide rails at least, okay? So he says that worship is focusing on God and responding to him. Focusing on God and responding to him. Fairly simple and I think helpful. Uh, there's another guy named Richard Foster. He wrote a book, very famous book, called Celebration of Discipline. Here's what he says. To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of gathered community. I think that's also helpful and fills out some. I took all that I read and uh, some of my own experiences, my study of the scriptures, and I also came up with my best stab at this, and so I'll humbly submit this to you. I believe worship is the expression of our greatest love. It is the full focusing of our attention, affection, and admiration upon the Lord our God. I would take all of those and put them together, and I would say we still are short of fully expressing but we're getting there. We're at least heading in the right direction. Uh, And hopefully the rest of what we see tonight will will help us even more to understand what it means to worship a holy, perfect God. Okay? We're going to move now to why do we worship? What What is the motivation? Well, first of all, as I've told you, this entire series has been anchored in the life of Christ. And if you've been here, been listening to the podcast Uh, you're going to see a higher level, higher degree of of repetition in the structure of these sermons than you normally would. And that's been intentional uh, because we we really want to make sure our motivation is anchored in the life of Christ. And so this has been similarly said and then backed up by the scriptures on all of the spiritual disciplines we've covered. Why do we worship? The first reason is because Jesus worshiped. Because Jesus worshipped. We see that in Matthew 26. And it wasn't just something that was maybe a a minute detail that he got to when he had time. We see that worship for Jesus, taking time to gather together with other believers and to sing of the goodness, the worth, and the glory of God. This was something that made high enough on the priority totem pole that they were spending some of the last precious moments Jesus had on this earth singing hymns together. Right? So this mattered to the master. This was high up on the list. So why do we worship? Well, we go back to the reason we're doing this, because we want to be like Jesus. Why? Because God wants us to be like Jesus, and if we want to be like Jesus, we're going to be worshipers. Now, how does that work? Jesus is part of the triune Godhead. How is he, is he singing to himself? Is he singing to the Father? I, I can't get into interrelational aspects of the Trinitarian Godhead, because I, I don't know, right? But I do know that Jesus joined in and was a part of probably leading uh, his men in worship of God. Um, and that was a part of how they spent their last night together. So that's, that's a big deal. Uh, the second thing I would say is because Jesus not only worshiped, but he clearly articulated that he expects us to worship. Uh, in Matthew 4.10, Jesus is doing battle with the devil. And he says, go, Satan. This, is, this was the kind of the last line. You know, Satan had done the old, how about you jump off this? How about you, uh, you know, turn these stones into bread? And and Jesus just kept smacking him back. And then this was kind of the final line when Satan was like, hey, man, I'll give you everything you see, right? It was a Lion King moment. Everything the light touches is your kingdom, right? He's got him up on a high place. And uh, he's, you know, bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. And and Jesus says to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And uh, 
that from that we see not only was Jesus aware of that command, but he expects it of us. We should worship the Lord our God and serve him only. And so I think in that command is, is, is contained that all of life worship we talked about, but I think inside that command is also contained this beautiful spiritual discipline, this freedom gift we have, this ability to come together as God's people and uh, with the aid of music to be able to sing praise and worship uh, to our glorious God. And so uh, the first two reasons was because Jesus worshiped, because Jesus expects us to worship. I could have gave you a lot more scripture for that, but um, like I told you, I'm, I'm trying to dial it back tonight and uh, give us time to just uh, spend in, in pursuing uh, God in worship tonight together. So uh, the, the, the next reason I'll give you of, of why we worship is, uh, and you can see it to some degree uh, in the reference I just made in Matthew 4, uh, Jesus is doing battle with the enemy as he uh, you know, basically declares this idea that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, and I'm going to give you another example of one of the reasons why we should worship as God's people is it's part of how we, it's not just Jesus, uh, but we can follow him in this. It's part of how we do battle with the enemy. And I want to give you an example um, of, of the time in the scriptures when this was true. Uh, this is from Second Chronicles. And uh, th- this to me has just some really... It, it, this, this is an incredibly powerful story. And it's, it's not a fairy tale. It happened. And uh, so I just want you to listen. Don't try to find it. Just listen to this and, and, and really in context of, of the power of worship in the life of those who follow God, think about what this means to us. Okay, It says, uh, Judah's being invaded. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the sons of the Maonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported Je- to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar. That is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Who's here for the fasting sermon? Yay! How's your fasting going? No, I know some of you have, and it's going good. We're, we're growing in grace. So Jehoshaphat calls uh, a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So everybody comes together. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying... Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance." O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. 
Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jerel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kephites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the son of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Do you see what happened there? In faith, they went out. In faith, they offered thanksgiving and praise to God. And at the very moment, in the midst of a situation, they, and what did they say to God? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God honored that humble prayer. They went out declaring the goodness of God before they had seen that he was going to deliver on his promises. They trusted by faith that God, because of his good character and because of what he'd done in the past, was going to live up to the honor that they were singing about. And as they begin to worship, the enemy turns on each other and they fight the battle for him. It goes on. It talks about them just going and picking up all the stuff out of the field to God's glory. Why did I read you that? That was a lot of verses. It was. I want you to see that I know you've got battles in your life right now. Some of them are in your own heart and mind. Some of them are external. You've got stuff you're fighting. And I'm telling you right now, dear friend, for some of you, the key is for you to quit trying to fight. You need to set your sword down. You need to acknowledge that you don't know what to do. And you need to tell your God your eyes are on him. And you need to worship and let him meet you right there and deliver you because that's your only shot. He still works like this, friends. The last reason I'll give you of why we worship is that it prepares us for eternity. While he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John received a vision from the Lord Jesus. This vision is recorded in the book of Revelation. John was allowed to see some amazing things about heaven and what goes on there. And uh, spoiler alert, it's a lot of worship. There's a lot of worship going on in heaven. I'm going to read you 
uh, another portion of Scripture from Revelation. This is a lot of verses, man. Yeah, but I'm trying to convince you of the importance of worship in the life of a Christian. Uh, I'm going to give you as, as much Bible about it as I can, because I've got my own opinions about it, strong opinions about it. Uh, but I believe God's Word is what has the power to transform our hearts and to stir in us a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for the things that I believe God's calling us to, for a, a true and a passionate and a spirit-filled worship. So I'm going to read this to you. This is from the vision Jesus came and gave John on the Isle of Patmos. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Sorry. Sometimes I let, I, I, I really let my mind go here, and... Um, Sometimes I'm, I'm overwhelmed with yearning for this day. And uh, I hope you are too. They're clothed in white robes. Palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces Before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Part of why we should worship, not only gathered as God's community, but really every moment that we have. Um, the reason why I believe you should sing songs of gratitude and thanksgiving to God every chance you have is because, dear friend, that's going to prepare you for eternity. We have an eternal home. We're going to be somewhere forever. It's not here. And there, there's a lot of worship happening. That's going to be a lot of how we spend our eternity. And, and I know for some of you the thought that just basking in the eternal glory of God and worshiping him, you're like, man, I'm afraid I'm going to get bored. Friend, what I'm praying for you is, is part something, if that's where you're at, I'm praying that something happens tonight in your heart where you're going to be able to taste and glimpse and see just enough of the goodness and the glory of God and what, what that eternal worship is going to be like, what it's like to be in proximity of the very presence and glory of God to where you will have no concern about boredom, actually, you'll, you'll, just, you'll just be more hungry and thirsty for more of it. That's, that's the hope, is that that kind of desire is stirred in you. I know for some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you've, you've stepped across the threshold of, of that inner room of God's glory. You know, and for some of you, it's been a long time. For you, I'm hoping tonight your tongue is wet again with the living water of the presence of God. But we have, to, we have to care about this. We have to pursue this. We can't settle for some dusty form of religion, friends. We need to pursue the presence of God, and we need to spend time, serious time, in worship of our God because it's part of what's going to set us up and prepare us for our eternal occupation, which is going to be to declare the worth and the glory, the majesty, the perfection, the beauty, the faithfulness of our God.
That's where we're headed. But we can taste it now. We can, we can bask in a shadow of it, a reflection of it now. That's God's desire for us. That's, that's where we're headed. The end of that section, it says, uh, one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm asking you. I'm asking you to let your imagination go here. For some of you, you struggle with dryness and worship because you're afraid to allow your imagination to be a part of it. You're afraid to let your emotions be engaged in it. The truth is, Allowing yourself to imagine the glory and the majesty that the, and the Bible's just given us what could be described in words. You understand this, right? I mean, the, the word pictures painted of heaven are enough to leave you overwhelmed, and, and it is so far less than what it will actually be. Do you understand that human language can only contain to a certain degree the glory we will encounter in eternity with Jesus? Do you understand that? And, and I'm just asking you to let your imagine as much as you can. Imagine as you sing, we don't sing songs here about you or how you feel. We sing songs here very intentionally about the sovereignty and the glory and the majesty and the kingship and the goodness and the peace that comes from our God. We lift Christ up. Let your imagination go to the lamb on the throne and a multitude of people, more than could be numbered, in white robes, swinging palm branches, declaring for eternity how good and worthy and wonderful this God is. Imagine him the way John saw him, with eyes like fire and hair like wool, feet like brass. Not precious moments, Jesus, man. I'm talking about the risen one, the king of glory. Let your imagination go there as you sing these songs. Quit thinking about your grocery list and every other thing and just let just worship. Jesus talked about that, man. People are going to come and worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Guys, that won't do. Worship that the heart is not engaged in is not worship. You're just singing a song. You might as well go home and listen to Beyonce, man. It's no different. What God wants is, is a heart and a mind, all of our being put into this process of declaring his worth and enjoying the fact that we get to do that because it's true. He wants you to be engaged, all, every part of you. And, and that's, that's what I talked about earlier, about a focus, an intentional focus of our attention and our affection upon him. That's, that's what worship looks like. That's what God desires. We'll see that as we continue. How do we worship well, one of the most profound things we see about an answer to this question is given from Jesus. You, you probably could have figured that out where I was headed. John 4, verses 23 and 24, the backstory is Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, and he's starting to read her mail. Uh, that's, that's what charismatics say when they're talking about somebody knows something about you that only God told them, right? So 
Uh, I've known guys that, that are, would, would stay away from certain preachers that they thought had a gift of prophecy because they, they, they're like, I'm not letting him touch me because I don't want, you know, A, B, and so whatever. So Jesus really had the, you know, some guys fake it. Some guys have it, but Jesus definitely had the gift of prophecy, and he starts talking to this woman, and she's trying to, you know, let's talk about this or that, and Jesus is like, hey, go get your husband. She's like, well, you know, I don't have one. Well, that's right, you've had five. So, you know, Jesus just lets her know, like, hey, I'm not the one. Don't play games, okay? So this is where they're at. They're in this banter, and uh, as a part of that discourse, she, she decides again to try to divert Jesus and say, well, you know, my people say we should worship over here on this mountain, and your people say over here, and so what... So what is it? Where do we worship? How do we worship? And Jesus' answered is that uh, the, the day is coming where we're not going to be concerned about these external things. We're not going to worry about here or there or what someone's wearing uh, or the forms of worship, which I think is what we very often get fixated on in the church. Uh, we want to think about, you know, when it comes to what we're talking about, bringing glory to God, or so, sometimes, sadly, worship becomes something much less than, than a concern about bringing glory to God. It becomes very much a way to stir people's emotions alone uh, and to manipulate. Sadly, that's true. Uh, and, and people worry very much about instrumentation and um, the, the, just the feel of it and, cre- and trying to create an environment uh, where people can do this or that. Jesus says, the day is coming. You're, we're not going to argue about over there or over here or how we do it or what instruments or not. We're not going to worry about what style of music. That's the, he didn't say all this. I'm, I'm adding that. Basically, he's saying external forms aren't going to matter. Here's what's going to matter. God is looking. He's seeking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. How do we worship? Out of the mouth of the master came these qualifications, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? First off, we cannot worship without the Spirit. The Bible says clearly that without, without the Spirit of God, we can't even declare Jesus as Lord and it mean anything. When the Bible says that, it doesn't mean somebody can't say Jesus is Lord and be a fraud. It means they can't say Jesus is Lord and mean it without the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit coming and doing the, the work of regeneration in our hearts, coming and changing our hearts, making us new creations in Christ, we can't worship. We can't approach God, we will, we will have, without the gospel and the good news that even though we are all sinners, enslaved to sin, dead in our sins, even though each and every one of us, have, we, we rightly deserve eternal separation from God instead of being reconciled to him for eternity, even though that's what we all deserve, Jesus came, lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death we should have, and then rose from the grave. And because of faith in him and his finished work, we can receive the Spirit of God. He can come and make this change in us that allows us to be able to worship. Without the gospel, worship would not be possible. Without the good news that sinners can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, there would be no such thing as worship. It wouldn't matter. We need to worship in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is what enables us and equips us and and guides us into true worship. So that's what... We have to worship in spirit, and we also have to worship in truth. We need to worship the true God as he is revealed in his word and not as we think he should be, right? We need to worship this God who's revealed himself as a God of grace and a God of wrath, a God of mercy and a God of judgment. He is who he is, and he is not tame. He is God, 
sovereign upon a throne above every throne. And he will not tolerate your petty judgment. You have no right to question him. He is the sovereign. And he deserves one thing from you. That is for your need to bow. And for you to declare his great and glorious worth. Amen. If our worship is an overflow of our love, and I think it is, it helps us understand what this means, right? Because the, the, the greatest commandment, according to the Master, is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For us to worship in spirit and in truth is, is tied very closely to the fact that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Our mind is involved because if our mind, if we're not thinking right thoughts about God, if we do not understand who he is, then we end up worshiping some idol we've created that is not really him. We need to know, know what the word of God teaches about God so that we are not worshiping some idealized version of ourselves, but we are actually worshiping the God as he is. Uh, all of our heart needs to be involved, our soul and our strength. In order to worship God in spirit and in truth, it's going to have to be an overflow of our love for him. And our love for him has to be an overflow of his love for us. He went first. When we recognize that, friends, when we understand how holy he is, how broken we are, and yet his sovereign decision was to pay everything in order to have us, in order to reconcile to us that he is he is weaving this beautiful tapestry that is going to come down to a finite point and it's going to be us and him forever. When you think of these things, when you think of these things, friends, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about focus, intention, affection, and attention upon the master. That's what worship should be. Worship should not be um, some fill-in time at the beginning of, of Christian services so that the late people can get there. It shouldn't be something at the end to try to, you know, People like music, so let's have music. Friends, it's not about music. Listen, music is powerful. The science is just now understanding that the human brain is hardwired to, for tone and rhythm and music. They're, they're treating Alzheimer's patients with music now because it awakens parts of the brain that nothing else does. You can look in nature and see the power of music, man. You turn on Metallica and termites will chew wood faster than they were before. Music has a tangible, real power. That's a real fact. Go look it up. It's like, oh, he's off the rails. No, man, that's real. That's, I just threw you a little science coin in there. All right? That's real. That's real. Music has an incredible power. Ask yourself why. Is that because, you know, at some point when, when um, a polywog went to a, a frog that then, you know, eventually became a hippopotamus that then, you know, went, went, then that was a giraffe and then something happened and now we got humans. Somewhere along that evolutionary line, we just decided rhythm was cool does it, does it have some survival thing to it? Is that why hardwired into nature is an appreciation for music? Is that what it is? Or is it, is it maybe, I don't know, that the God who created everything built into this reality that he's given us, this, this power into, into music, why we respond to it, why even things in nature respond to rhythm, why uh, it, it strikes us all the way down at the emotional level why you know, even the medical community is now using music to try to heal people. It has, it has a real deal, absolute uh, power of its own. But we need to understand some of the most beautiful gifts God has given us, and I would put music in, the, in that basket, uh, it, those are always the things Satan targets first for perversion. Satan is described in the scriptures as 
being very covered with all kinds of musical instruments and, and, and some would say even the, the chief musician in heaven before he got the idea that I deserve glory instead of God. And, and if you look at the music industry and how many people are led astray by music that is not used for its original intent and purpose, and I'm just going to go out here and make everybody mad and I don't care. I haven't said anything to make you mad yet. I've almost forgot to, but here it is. I, so if I, if I go back to God's creative order, I'm, I'm going to bring this existence into creation, right? I'm, I'm going to infuse music into this thing. I'm going to give it as a gift to my people. What, is it, what, what was the point of that? Well, the point of music had to be the same point of everything else. Colossians says God created everything for him, through him, and for his glory. Music is just another part of this creation that was created with the ultimate purpose of bringing God glory. And so... Music's intent and purpose is to give us a rhythm with which to worship our God. Now, can some of the beauty of creativity and all of that uh, be noticed and appreciated in music that is not for the express purpose of bringing glory to God? Sure. I'll give you that. But let's just keep first things first in our minds and hearts. Let's just remember, music didn't just happen. It's not a part of some evolutionary timeline. Music is a creation of God, and he created it for a purpose. It was for him. So run what's going through your earbuds through that filter. Everybody happy? I told you. Let's just flat out say it. Music's an idol for some of you. This is why, that's why you're frustrated with what I'm saying. People don't like when, when their idols get attacked. So, But that's my job. It's so fun. <laughs> Battle axe and cut them all down to pieces. Yay. Amen. I'm not doing good on shortening this. Okay. All right, I'm going to do it. I want to call your attention to Psalm 100. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Normally, I got a lot more to say about this than I'm about to say. Here's, here's what I want you to see about this. I, I've seen Psalm 100 since I was a young man as a blueprint for worship, and I believe it is. I want to call your attention specifically uh, to how much gratitude and thanksgiving is discussed here. And this, there's this idea where it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I want you to understand, I don't know if some of you even think about it this way. Every single time we approach God in worship, there's a proximity issue. And, and, and some of us would be tempted to say, well, God is omniscient um, and, and he's omnipresent. And so he's, he's everywhere and he's all-knowing. And, and so, you know, I, why would I need to try to press into God's presence. I am close to him. He's in me. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? What do you mean get closer to him? I know that all that's true, but I'm just telling you right now. There there is also this truth that the standard way in which we walk in most days, it's not that God withdraws from us, it's that our ability to perceive his glory and goodness 
it, it, it ebbs and flows. And, and there's this idea in Psalm 100, and it's throughout the scriptures, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. And the reason why congregational worship, uh, even times maybe alone when you, you try to pray and you try to worship God on your own, many of you, the reason why that's dry and it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere is because you hang out out at the outer gate. You don't know how to press in past that. You don't even know what you're looking for. You don't know that I could come closer, that there's more to have, that I could get closer to the very manifest glory of God. You don't know to keep pressing, so you just hang out at the outer gate and there you are. I, part of what I want to happen tonight, what I've asked God for, what other leaders that know what we're doing have asked God for is, is for you to be drawn in, for you to come closer, for you to step across that threshold, not just into the outer gate, not the outer court, but to come in, into that holy room where God's very presence is, to come and drink of that living water Revelation talked about. That's, that's what we're hoping for. This is real. What do you, I, I don't know. God's omnipresent, though. I don't uh, you, Psalm 100, I don't know if that's enough. Okay, James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's James talking about? Is he making stuff up? Is this just flowery language? No, friends, there's this, there's this thing. There's this element of intentionality in you pursuing closeness with the master. His throne is there. He has made himself available to his children. It is up to us to come with the proper posture and pursue him. Part of what Psalm 100 reveals to us is you're not coming anywhere near the presence of God without thanksgiving. You will not get in the outer gate without a heart full of gratitude. That is the only way anybody's coming in the presence of the king. Makes sense? Is he worthy of that? Is that a problem for anybody? Shouldn't be. To think of who he is and what he's done, our hearts should be full of gratitude. We're told we can draw near to God and he will draw near to us. It says, cleanse you ha your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's so something I want to prepare you for practically. Uh, book of Malachi, God calls himself a refining fire. As you pursue the presence of God and you, you, you try to move closer in proximity to him and you, you, you seek for the, the revelation of his manifest glory, you, you want to be able to, I'm going to say it, feel and perceive his presence. That's okay to say. As you press into that, I want you to be aware that every single time you legitimately do that, you're almost immediately conviction is going to happen. Almost immediately, you're going to start being reminded of things where you've fallen short of the glory of God. Well, why is that? That's a bummer. I just want to have a good time. Well, you got to, you got to deal with this stuff first, right? Because God is a refining fire. His holiness is perfect and complete. And so if you're going to come near him, you got to handle that stuff. And what's going to happen is there's going to be conviction. Satan automatically is going to want to come and make that condemnation and get you withdrawal. You're going to feel the heat of the refining fire of the holiness of God as you move close to him. And you're going to go, whoo, man, that's uncomfortable. That's not the right answer, friend. Go on in. Press on in. Confess. Trust. Repent. Know that he's going to forgive you. Let that stuff burn away and be gone and then keep, keep coming forward. That's what a refining fire does, man. It brings up stuff that was hidden I didn't know about. The dross from the silver is separated. God's trying to do something with you. He's trying to purify you. He's making you into something. But so many times, man, we stay at the outer gate. We don't get into that experience. We don't ever, we don't ever have that. And then we wonder why we feel so, so sick and overburdened and, and broken. Uh, we need to be near the master. We were created for his presence. I'm gonna this is the last set of scriptures I'm going to read you, okay? This is it. 
and, and I'm reading you this very, very purposely because I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is my last ditch attempt to stir an expectancy in you for what it looks like to draw near to God and to have him draw near to you, okay? This is also from Second Chronicles. This is when the ark was brought into the temple that had just been finished. They, I was going to read the whole thing. They, okay, so the temple's finished. They bring the ark in. It gives a bunch of description of kind of how they do that. They set this thing down. It's very glorious, okay? The ark gets set down in the inner sanctuary, um, and, then, and then this happens. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman and Jeduthun and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres standing east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they had lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good for his loving kindness, is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Friends, I'm just trying to stir you. I'm just trying to show you something. This is real. And this is possible. Now, is this impossible by yourself? Absolutely not. Some of the most glorious, intimate experiences I've had in God's presence have been by myself or with just a few. But I'm going to tell you something. There's, there's a reason why they give you the details they give you in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify God. That's when that glory cloud came in. And did you, did you catch it, man? They couldn't even, they, the, the presence of God was so tangible and so heavy and so glorious. They were forced down. They couldn't stand to their knees and then down to their faces. And that's where they lay as they declared his glory. And I, I, listen, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to, Tell God what he's going to do here tonight. Never. I'll never be that insolent, but I'm asking him. I'm asking him, wherever you are in this, whatever level of understanding you have about this, whatever you've experienced or haven't experienced, I'm asking God to graciously take you in farther than you've ever been so that you can taste the sea, so that you can understand, because I believe if you taste it, you'll push for it. I believe if you taste it, you'll be thirsty and you'll go after it again. And I believe there's something to this. And, and this whole sermon series was born out of a desire to see revival in this house with, with us as a church family and however far God will take it. We want people to be overcome with the goodness of the Lord Jesus and his gospel. And I believe some of how that's going to happen is for us to rekindle again a right and proper worship, posture, and desire there's something beautiful about when people get together and in unity cry out to God. It honors him. It blesses him in a special way and he'll show up. That's what we're asking for tonight. I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to push every distraction aside and I'm asking you as an overflow of love to God to focus intently your attention and your affection upon him as we go into worship tonight.
And I'm asking you to think about who he is and let your mind wander to his glory, how good he's been to you and the promises of eternity with him. And I'm hoping in Christ for us to, to never be the same. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you would put into human language things deeper than we could ever truly understand. Thank you for getting down on our level and showing us these things. Thank you for teaching us, leading us, and guiding us. Thank you for being, Lord, through your word, the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your goodness and your loving kindness. It is everlasting. Thank you that you are sovereign Lord over eternity, not just this temporal space and time that we're stuck in right now, but for all of eternity, you will be the supreme sovereign over all and you will forever deserve all of our worship. God, may we reflect as much as is possible that beautiful eternal reality tonight. God, I ask you to teach your people how to pursue you. I ask you to teach us how to approach you with grateful hearts. I ask you to show us what it means to pass the outer gate, to come to the inner court, to cross the threshold of your holy and glorious throne room, to come and be right at your feet, God. Psalm 91 says that we can dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, draw us so close that you can whisper in our ears and we would hear you. Lord, we don't want to stand afar off where you've got to yell to get our attention. Lord, draw us in close. Teach us, Lord, how to draw near to you. And then, Lord, be faithful to your promise to draw near to us. We need you, Lord. We are thirsty and we are hungry and we are desperate for more of you. We can't do this on our own. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We need you, Master, and we love you. Please, Lord, do something in us we've never seen. And may you be glorified in all of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give... Or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.